Father, that's why we're here this morning. We're here to praise You, to give You the honor and the attention that You deserve as our Father, Father of our Lord Jesus, the Giver of the Spirit, and our great King. And we know You're here in this moment. And You've called us together in love. And now You're going to speak, if You will, and we're here to listen. We love you so much, and we pray in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. You can be seated. Hey, if you have a Bible with you, open it to Psalm 77. We're going to start there this morning. And this is a, a psalm to know. This is a psalm to have at the ready. And here's a question for you. And answer by raising your hand if you feel comfortable. But remember, you're, you're, you're with your friends. These are your people. Uh, how many of you woke up at least once last week in the middle of the night due to some kind of stressful thought? Go ahead. That's a lot of people. That's, uh, that's a lot of us. Uh, well, Psalm 77 understands us occasional insomniacs. Uh, it really does. And like so many psalms, uh, the topic of this psalm is turmoil. Psalmist is experiencing emotional turmoil. And as you can see in verse 2, he calls his present moment the day of my trouble. And although the psalm doesn't say, he is so worked up that he can't even speak. And not only that, he, he can't sleep. And in verse 7, he wonders if things will ever get better. Will the Lord spurn forever uh, and never again be favorable? But then in, in verse 10, something really interesting happens in the psalm. Before sinking any lower... Before grabbing whatever it is people in ancient Israel grabbed for when they wanted to numb pain, he brings a thought to mind. And we see this move in the, psalm at, in the Psalms at different points. We see the writers of the Psalms talking to themselves, engaging in some self-talk, and intentionally trying to direct their minds and their thoughts back to what is true and what's real back to God listen to him in verse 10 he says then I said I will appeal to this I will remember the deeds of the Lord yes I will remember your wonders of old I will ponder all your work and I'll meditate on your mighty deeds in other words he's saying in his late night distress, I'm going to think back. I'm going to take control of my thoughts. And I'm going to remember all of God's great deeds in the past. And I'm going to do that in order to stoke the flames of hope and confidence so that I can feel better and maybe even sleep better. And then what does he do in the very last six verses of Psalm 77, which I hope you will read this week. Maybe you'll write that down in your notes. In these final verses of Psalm 77, he brings to mind one 
specific great deed of God. And the one specific great deed of God he centers his mind on is the great deed of God that we arrive at in this week five message from the rise of the name bearers, our study of the book of Exodus. And of course, the great deed that he goes back to, again, to pull himself out of his swamp of stress and sorrow is the crossing of the Red Sea. And that's what we arrive at this morning. That's the great deed that the psalmist goes back to, to feel better. He's gonna remember it. He's gonna relive it. He's gonna think about it. And as he does, he is going to expect God to give him a, a real-time injection of hope and confidence. He's expecting that he's gonna feel better. And this is really interesting. In Exodus chapter 12, even before the Bible narrates these great events of uh, the Exodus, and the, the Passover and the crossing of the Red Sea, even before the Bible narrates it for us, the Bible tells us to remember it. It's really interesting ordering. Uh, the Bible wants us to remember these events. And the reason for these rituals that the Bible actually gives us is that though, so that these amazing events become part of us, so that they uh, become how we see all of reality. In fact, the Bible puts it in a really interesting way. Twice in Exodus 13, the Bible says, this event is so powerful, it's so revelatory of who the one true God really is. You, you, you gotta remember it through various rituals every year. It should become like a mark on your hand. And he says that twice uh, in Exodus 13. So what's the point? What God wanted for them, what was so important to God for them, what he wants for them, he wants for us. And as people farther along in that story, people who belong to King Jesus, people who belong together, uh, recognizing Jesus's leadership in our lives, God still wants this story, the greatest of all stories in the Old Testament, he wants it to become for us like a mental tattoo. And that's your first fill-in. He wants us to know this story. He, he wants it to form our theological imaginations, to be at the, the, the very foundation of how we think about God and what he's accomplished in Jesus Christ. It's so important. And that's why the biblical writers keep coming back to it over and over again. All the way through the book of Revelation, there's Exodus talk. So here's the plan. Just like the people of Israel walked together through the Red Sea. Here's what we're gonna do this morning. We as a hillside family are gonna walk through this story. We're gonna relive it. And as we do, we are gonna expect God's spirit to do something in our lives, to speak to us, to encourage us. If we've had trouble sleeping recently, <laughs> to calm us, knowing that a very powerful God is in control of our lives, our families, our children, our churches. He's in control and he loves us. This is a great, great, great story. All right, let me pray for us as we keep going. Father, this is such a crucial story for understanding everything else that follows in scripture. And Holy Spirit, as we relive this rescue, we pray that you would make it like a mark on our hands so that in times of turmoil, we can think back to it and we can be heartened. 
We can remember who you are. We can remember uh, what you did for our ancestors. And we can find courage and strength. And we pray this again in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, to remind you of the context, um, the, the Israelites have just walked out of Egypt. And the final plague, the destruction of the firstborn, has finally convinced Pharaoh uh, that he is in the presence of a much badder man in Yahweh. And he gives up and he lets the people go. But as we'll see, uh, they're out, but they're not quite out of the woods. So let's pick up the story. Chapter 13, verse 17. Listen to this. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud and led them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Notice two details. First of all, what do they do? They take the bones of Joseph with them. And this is actually a very important detail. It clues us into the fact that there is a reason for this rescue over and above the relief of the people. There's something bigger going on than simply uh, rescuing them. And that big thing ties into a promise that God made to Abraham, Joseph's great-grandfather. And the promise was that somehow Joseph's family, in some mysterious way, would be a source of benefit and blessing to the entire world. And right then, as Christian people united around Jesus, we should think to ourselves, you know, maybe our salvation is like that too. Maybe there's a reason for it. Maybe there's a purpose behind it that's greater than just us. Maybe God has something in mind for it, purposes for it that are beyond just what we get out of it. Who knows? And then second, notice that the Lord is with them. The Lord's leading them somewhere. And notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't lead them out of Egypt. And then he doesn't say something like this. Hey, you kids have a good time out there. Burning man is just down the road, okay? Uh, I'll see you when I see you. That's not what he does at all. He stays with them. He leads them somewhere. And the Bible is emphatic that he does not depart from them. Continuing on, verse five. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this that we've done that we've let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiant. And as we read here, Pharaoh and his officials have a change of heart. And they regret suddenly that they have allowed their brick-making minions to escape the kingdom. 
And so what do Pharaoh and his henchmen do? They go out after him. And if we remember the story, we, we have to conclude that they have obviously forgotten about all the misery that they experienced under the plagues. Apparently it's out of their minds. I mean, some people who think about these stories, read them and they write about them, some, some people are surprised by this change of mind. They'll think, does that really even make sense? I tell you what, this does not change, does not surprise me in the least bit that Pharaoh would have some kind of change of mind. Because I, I was thinking about this very deeply this week, and I thought, you know, when I think about my own life, when I think about my journey with Jesus over many, many, many years, I'm actually aware of something. I'm aware that often I am a glutton for punishment. If I really look at my own life, and I have had many experiences where I have gotten bruised by a bad decision. I made some kind of decision that did not comport with wisdom, did not match God's plan for flourishing for me. But then just like a millisecond after the bruise fades, I'm back to my old tricks. Can anyone sort of relate to that at all a little bit? Yeah, a few of us. It's just such a good thing. God is gracious to us, isn't it? It's so good that... <laughs> We struggle, but God is gracious, endlessly compassionate. He's merciful. It's so good that he remembers that we're dust, which is what the psalmist says in Psalm 103. He understands that we're prone to wandering, prone to doing dumb things. But having said that, maybe, maybe here's something to learn. Maybe we should ask ourselves occasionally as we do the, the kind of self-examination that actually is really appropriate during the season of Lent, which we're beginning soon, maybe we should ask ourselves this question. Am I acting like crazy Pharaoh here? In some way, am I racing my chariot into the same stone wall again? And if we find that we are in any kind of area of life, maybe, maybe we should do this. Maybe we should just look, pull up on the reins of that chariot and, and, and turn that baby around. Because the Bible is so clear. God is so generous. God meets us when we do an honest exa an examination and we notice that we're going in the wrong direction and we just turn it around. The Bible's term is repentance. And it's a, a key part of the Christian life. Maybe that's something we, we get out of this. God meets us. God never despises repentance. God never despises, never, God never disdains us when we say to our small group or we say to ourselves or we say to the person we're married with, I'm going in the wrong direction. I want to turn that chariot around. He's generous. Verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us to die in the wilderness? Some of you are laughing and you should, right? If there's one place where you can find graves, it's Egypt, right? Those pointy buildings, right? Pyramids. But this is interesting. Back in verse eight, we're told that when they leave right after the 10th plague, they go out defiantly. And the picture here is of, uh, I actually think of, a, of, a, of a, a basketball player we all love from the Bay Area, okay? Kind of 
strutting down the court, <laughs> jersey popping, maybe doing a little trash talking. That's how I imagine uh, the people of Israel here. Who's making your bricks now? We're out of here. But then they look up and what do they see? The, the chariots of the world's most fearsome army speeding towards them and right then record scratch. <laughs> the music stops. And first they cry out to the Lord and they don't do, very, do that very long. Then they bash Moses. They go after Moses. I mean, what have you done? Why have you taken us out here? Why have you led us into disaster? They just totally melt down. Well, what does Moses do? Starting at verse 13. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Spot on advice, isn't it? Skipping down to 19, here's we get favorite moment in the story. Listen to this. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. And I love the description. Now just think about it. It's a little bit clearer in more contemporary versions of the Bible, but here's the picture. With, a, with a, the thundering Egyptian war machine bearing down on the people of Israel, their backs are against the sea. They're only armed with their kneading bowls. That's what they got to defend themselves. And the angel of God moves He's in front of them. Then he moves behind them, becoming a, a barrier between the, the oncoming Egyptian army and his people. And I just think, what a, what a picture. What a, what a revelation of the true God. This is not an accident. This is who God is. This is our God. This is a God who places himself between his people and danger. And what's more, notice this, an amazing detail. Notice that on the Egyptian side, he's darkness. And on the Israel side, he's light. Incredible. And you'd think at this point that the Egyptians would come to their senses, right? Because what happened the last time they experienced darkness in the middle of the day? It was the ninth plague. And the 10th plague was coming, the destruction of the firstborn. But now, now they're hard-hearted. They're puffed up with pride. They don't get the message. Now verse 21 until the end. See this in your heads. <laughs> Let this be the moment when the Exodus tattoo forms on your hand. This is our story. Paul says these are our ancestors. These are our people. Listen to this. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided and the people of Israel went into the mists of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen, 
And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Not one of them remained but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. Amen indeed. What do we learn from this? What do we learn from this now as the people of the Messiah? So much, so much. Most obviously, I mean, just right off the surface, we, we learn about the power that God wields for the people he loves, people like us. And I love the description of the water. Twice in the chapter, the Bible describes, I love this, the waters being a wall to them on the right and the left. And I wonder how big the walls were. What would those walls look like? And I wonder too, you know, were, were dolphins and squid and orca, you know, pressing their noses against the glass, seeing this nation walk by. And this story gives me so much joy, so much expectation. This is my God. The God who accomplished this rescue is my God. He's the God who I am in the closest possible relationship with in his son, Jesus, who's here and here. That Jesus is that God. And like we talked about in week one, the Lord Jesus, our friend who we know and walk with day by day is the God of the Exodus. Jude 5. Now I want to remind you, although once you fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. Our Jesus is that God. But let's drill down a little deeper. We learn about the power, but I think there's more we can learn about. Let me draw your attention back to verses 15 and 16. These are verses we skipped the first time around. Here we have God speaking to Moses in these fraught moments, right before the crossing, right before the Egyptian army crashes down on them. Listen to this. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. Let me ask you a question. Do those verses, and especially the second one, verse 16, do they sound any biblical bells? in your mind. You hear any echoes? I mean, first, does something stretched over the water remind you of 
the second verse of the Bible. Listen to this. Genesis 1-2, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Maybe it's a coincidence. Let's keep looking at it. Do the Red Sea waters being divided sound any biblical bell in your head? Again, Genesis 1, Genesis 1-6, listen to this. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. Okay, maybe this is not a coincidence. And finally, does dry ground that the people walk down, does that sound any biblical bells in your head? How about Genesis 1-9? And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. What do we have here? We have three echoes from the creation story in one verse. This is not a, an accident. So what's the Spirit of God trying to tell us? What's the God who inspired this story trying to say to us? Here's what I think, and I love it. I, I, I love it. The Exodus is a creation within a creation. So what's been created? what God make? In the Exodus, here's what he made. He made a family. He made a royal family. Think about what you know from the story if you've been reading along. God took a bunch of sullen, sad sack people with no particular sense of identity, no real memory of who they came from, no real memory of the God who had spoken to their ancestors. And what did he do? He turns them into a people. He turns them into a nation. He turns them into a family. And that this is one of the major takeaways for us from the Exodus story is really plain from the way the story ends. Look at verse 30 and 31. You can see it on your handout or in your own Bible. Up to this, really interesting, up to this point in the book of Exodus, Nearly every reference to the people whom God saves out of Egypt, and these references are numerous, nearly every single one is to the people of Israel or to the children of Israel. If you have a concordance, you can look it up. But after their rescue, after their baptism through the sea, they are just Israel. Look at it. Verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. What does this mean for us? Stick with me. This is a thick biblical weave, but so important for us who want to grow in our understanding of Christian truth. Let's put these things together. If our baptism, us coming to Jesus and then going up and down in the water, if our baptism is an exodus, and in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul links these ideas. And if the exodus is the creation of a royal family, then it follows that to be a Christian is to be, by definition, a member of that royal, for a grand purpose, family. There's no other kind of Christianity. 
It's the only kind on offer. There is no solo Christianity. There's no just me and Jesus Christianity. To be baptized, to believe in Jesus, to have our sins washed away is by definition to become part of this beloved, adored, rescued, royal family that exists for a very specific purpose that's bigger than our own forgiveness, bigger than our own psychological needs. That family. So what's the upshot? Let's keep loving the family. Let's keep loving this family because this is where we all are. Let's keep drawing close to this family. Let's keep investing in the hillside family. Let's see our baptism, whatever it was, whether it was three weeks ago or 30 years ago, is not just a vertical event that connects us with God, but a horizontal event that, that connects us with this people this people with a critical plan to bless everyone else in the world. That's what baptism is. And you know what? When I look at our church, I think we are doing this so well. I see it all over the place. I see all sorts of people loving the family. I see people trying to put the family together in certain ways, planning retreats, which was the greatest retreat in the history of the universe, thanks to Jack LaSalle. I'm really curious to see how the women will top it soon. I see there's a guy in this room, Brad Redledge, who gathers hillside men every few weeks just to connect. I see so many people <laughs> connecting this family, but this is what we learn. Let's love it, and let's love it even more than we are. You know, Paul in Philippians 1.9 prays this way. He says, and it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. And they do love each other. And he says, I want that love to be even greater, even stronger. You know, um, one practical way, practical way we could all do this. And we're, we're, we are doing this. But one way we could do it even more is we could all decide, everyone in this room, that we're going to attend a church-wide <laughs> potluck event in a bunch of the homes of people from our church on April 20th. We try to get every single hillsider that night in a, in, a, in, a, in a potluck dinner party. And the reason we're doing it is that families eat together. And it's a small thing, it's a humble thing, it's a potluck festival all around the county. But if we go, we'll make new relationships and God can do great things through those. April 20th, I hope you'll be there. Let me give you one more takeaway. Look back at verse 15. Remember the context. The people have just blasted Moses. If you've ever been a leader of anything and you've gotten some criticism, take, 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 take confidence. You're in good, good company with Moses. People have blasted Moses. Moses replies that the Lord will fight for them. All they have to do is, is do nothing, basically. Listen to verse 15. Now the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Now let's think about this really hard. We're familiar with this story, so sometimes we miss certain things. What do the Lord's words imply here? Especially the last phrase, and especially following as they do what Moses just said to the people. I've never noticed this before, but I learned it this week. Moses is only half right. 
with the advice that he gives. Yes, he's right that the Lord will fight for them. But no, he's not right that the people should do nothing. Rather, they should go forward. They should take action. And what do we learn from this? The right response to being rescued by God, the right response to being pulled out of the brick factory of sin and death and condemnation and being put together with a royal family, the right response is not passivity. The right response is action. God desires our bold, joyful, trusting action. Being a member of this family is not about passivity. It's not about just watching the train go by. It's about bold, practical action in faith. And you know, prayer is action, by the way. Prayer is some of the most important action that we take together. And once we are attuned to that theme of the way the purpose of the rescue is action and action together, you see it everywhere in the story. Look at this. Think back to the story that Wayne preached on very early in this series, the commissioning of Moses. Yes, the Lord will deliver his people. But how's he going to do it? He's going to do it through Moses and Aaron, their leadership, their persistence, their advocacy, their use of God-given signs like the staff. Think of the Passover. Yes, God's going to rescue his people. He's going to save them from destruction, but he calls his people to participate. To do what? Slaughter a lamb and their families. Smear the blood on the doorpost of the lintel so that God goes by and spares them. Think again of today's story. Yes, the Lord will part the seas and only he can do that. But what's he going to do? He's going to do it as Moses lifts up his staff and as the people go forward. Moving together in obedience to the Lord. One heart, one mind. What's this mean for us? Here's what I think. It means that as members of God's name-bearing family here in this church, because we're together, both in our individual spheres and our corporate spheres as members of a church, we should go forward. We should always be looking to take some act of hopeful action. Even if things look bleak, we do something. We take a step. We pray a prayer. We make a phone call. We start something. We show up. We do something. And of course, we don't contribute to our own justification, just a fancy word that means our basic rightness with God. But once we've been forgiven, once we've been washed clean, once we've been marked out for eternal life, once we've named a daughter or a son of the king, once we've been made a member of that royal family, we take all sorts of action. And we do it together as a family, walking together, marching together, going to the new creation together in all sorts of ways. What could that mean practically? Keep coming to church. We got some ideas.